The musical instruments of the Wrens are all handmade by community members. Such skills are encouraged. Since coming to Burton Port, the clogmaker among the eight has been busy. Members wear these, but soon they'll be sold to the public. So too will other works such as this cloth, the embroidery on which depicts an important Rhenish belief in the tree of life. Within this house one finds no electricity or no modern appliances. Welcome to another episode of Classic Gaming Brothers. I'm Zach. And I'm Seth. And we are the Classic Gaming Brothers. That's right. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. We are. We are the Classic Gaming Brothers. And I think right now we're the Classic Gaming Ireland Ireland Brothers. Brothers. You know Sons of Anarchy, the show about the motorcycle gang? Exactly like us. No, remember that season where they went to Ireland and everyone was like, the show has jumped the shark? That's, That's This is what happened. So now that we're in Ireland, our show is Jump Brothers. the Shark. Yeah, that's why we're covering today's uh, topic. Well, yes, we are in Ireland, uh, but just because Seth and I are 3,000 or so miles away from our recording studio does not mean we can't put out an episode. That's right. In fact, producer Doug, he brought the studio with us on this business trip. He packed everything up somehow. Uh, it's like that scene in Ant-Man where they shrink down the, the building and carry it as right. a suitcase. That's what he did, except... You didn't shrink anything down. Do you know what there is in Ireland? Vacant buildings. <laughs> nice. Just like at home. <laughs> and that's why we're recording out of a castle. Doesn't have a roof, but it's a castle nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, in any case, Seth, uh, what have you been recently playing? Uh, so recently I got a, uh, a play date, which is uh, not a an activity that you do with another person. It's a, it's a handheld device that has a crank. And the screen is made of e-ink, so it uh, lasts for a very long time and can play some pretty good games on it. It's kind of like uh, 8-bit style games, and I actually got it to crash because I sideloaded a Game Boy emulator on it and tried to run Pokemon Red on it and it did not handle it well. It did start Zelda, um, like The Legend of Zelda for the Game Boy. I don't know if the buttons were mapped appropriately because I couldn't skip the intro, but the Playdate, it does come with games that were designed for it. I bought the Playdate primarily for Lucas Pope's game that he's working on right now called Mars After Midnight. I'm a very big fan of Lucas Pope. I've played all of his games, including the free ones that he worked on when he was early in his development. I have played a lot of Papers, Please, and I've also played a lot of Return to the Albert Inn and he's working on Mars After Midnight and I was like that's a really cool game it's going to use some like parallax scrolling effects and stuff like that and I'm really excited to play it but it's not out yet but now I have the play date so when it comes out I can play it on the play date the gimmick of the play date is that it has a crank and you have to crank it to do things in the games and they also have a a season of games when you buy it so when you turn it on they give you two games a week for 12 weeks so you get 24 games in the season and one of the first games that you get that's part of season one is a game developed by chuha labs called whitewater wipeout it was released in 2021 and in the game you use the crank to control the surfer while riding the wave your objective is to build up speed 
and then go up along out of the wave and spin the crank really fast while you're in the air so you can do 360s and then land back on the water to get points. Uh, if you don't land successfully, you crash and the run is over and you have three runs. It's a tough little fun game that's perfect for the Playdate style of games, which are kind of light, casual, 8-bit games with a crank. It's a very niche set of games. But I really enjoy the battery life of the Playdate. It lasts for, I think it's like a week or change without needing to charge it. It charges very fast and you could just, and, but there's no way to turn it off. You can lock it, but you cannot turn it off. Once the Playdate awakens, it is awake for life. So yeah, so that's the the play date. I'll probably talk a little bit in the in future episodes during my recently played section about other games that come out during the season. So if you plan on getting a play date, then I will let you know about some of the games that you may receive in the future. They are difficult to get a hold of. I think I put an order in. I waited about three months. They run about the MSRP right around about 200 bucks right now. For me, the jury's still out there. If it was a worthwhile investment, do I think I've got $200 worth of entertainment right now? I don't know. I feel like the gimmick's like 120 bucks alone. So we'll see what the, the season one entails. And if I can get some get some quality time for it. What I do also like about the Playdate is that it's about the size of my hand. Uh, unlike my Steam Deck, which is the size of four of my hands, the Playdate fits comfortably in one hand and you can use the little crank. So it's really good for like if you go to the DMV and you don't want to bring your Steam Deck with you, you can bring the Playdate in your pocket. And it also comes with earbuds so you can plug in earbuds. In fact, it's something that you could take on your lunch break at work and except for the whole part of cranking it. So I think if you were cranking something in the middle of a cafeteria, people would wonder what the hell you were doing. Yeah, I also feel like it's something that like, if you brought on an airplane, people might be wondering what you're doing if you're just like cranking something. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. I think it's the motion that someone might see from behind. Yeah, of what yeah. cranking looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They might, they might, they might think you're doing something else. Yeah. Listening to I, I think, episode 69 of Classic Gaming Brothers. For sure, for sure. I can see that. Yes, listeners, if you're if you're curious why we're laughing about being inappropriate, just uh, make a cranking motion with your hand and think about what other people might think it looks like. So, Zach, what have you been recently been playing? Well, Seth, recently I was thinking about our episode that we did with Josh from uh, Still Loading, and I thought about some James Bond games that I haven't played. So I decided I was going to play GoldenEye 007 Reloaded. GoldenEye 007 Reloaded is the PS3 Xbox 360 port of the 2010 Wii remake of the game GoldenEye 007. It was a game developed by Eurocom and published by Activision, and it follows the plot of the film and the game, but instead of Pierce Brosnan, you play as Daniel Craig. And it also restructures the world to be set in, like, Daniel Craig time as opposed to the 80s, 90s. Is it good? I enjoyed parts of it. I think it's pretty fun. It relies on some more modern, I would almost call them nice that you'd get from recent first-person shooters. For example, when you have an objective, there is a map marker. So you know where to go for that objective, oh, as opposed to in the original game where you had to kind of just guess where your objective was by wandering around aimlessly and trying not to get killed by Soviets. I think this has a positive and a negative impact. For one thing, you're less likely to miss an objective, but it does make the game feel a bit more linear than GoldenEye 007 for the N64 is. And in all fairness, GoldenEye 007 for the N64 is arguably a linear game, but you can do some of your objectives out of order without failing a task. In this 
this game, it pretty much just advises you to just, you really have to do your objectives in the order you're assigned to do them because otherwise you probably wouldn't know what your objective is. The game's just like, okay, go here, go here now. Um, but overall, I, I like it. I like the design. They restructure the GoldenEye plot to be set in more of a modern era. It is definitely post-Cold War, you know, early 2000s when Daniel Craig was starting out as Bond. And it kind of has that element to it as well, where um, you hear some of the Russian troops, you know, talking about what it was like being Soviet troops many years ago and the difference between how like General Aramov runs things now that he's no longer a Soviet general. And uh, I think that adds kind of a different complexity to it. I think the game so far is faithful to the original game without being like a carbon copy. Um, so it's been fun to try out, though I certainly think I prefer the original GoldenEye. Well, today's episode, because we're in Ireland, we want to talk about a video game company connected to Ireland. Now, many moons ago, back in episode 141, Seth played the game Bugsy, or the King of Chicago. Just just in episode 141, we talked about the Nick Arcade. I, for the Retro Rewind, I gave Seth Bubsy, and he misheard me, and he played Bugsy. Then he realized he misheard me, and he also played Bubsy, but his recently played in that episode is Bugsy, also known as the King of Chicago, which is a mafia rabbit-themed text adventure game for, like, the ZX Spectrum and Commodore 64 and Amstrad CPC. Bugsy, as Seth learned, was developed by a company that called themselves St. Bride School, which was an Irish game developer, and not really a company, I would say. And this would lead us down a wild, for lack of a better word, rabbit hole. Now, our story begins actually back in 1942 with the birth of Jenny James. Jenny would immigrate from England to the small village of Burtonport in County Donegal in Ireland. In Burtonport, she would establish a small commune called Atlantis. The community became locally known as the Screamers due to the fact that they employed primal scream therapy in their practices, meaning uh, when they had to vent their frustrations, they screamed very loudly. The Screamers were there until around 1980 when they left. And when they left, another group took their place. This one coming from Yorkshire. So another British group came in. This group consisted about seven members who called themselves the Silver Sisterhood and named the building they inhabited the Bridge of Life. So I want you to think about the small town of Burtonport. It's actually a village in County Donegal who had to deal first with the Screamers. And now the Screamers are gone, but suddenly this other mysterious group is coming in. And I'm pretty sure reports at the time were like, could the Screamers be back? <laughs> because we're not sure. Now, the Silver Sisterhood, also known as the Rhenish community, was a new religious movement. They believed in a supreme deity that they referred to as the Mother. They believed that everything they did was in worship of her. The Sisterhood primarily worshipped through singing and chanting. They also made all of their own instruments by hand that they played, as they believed that crafting material was a pathway to become sacred. Another belief they held was that the world, the world that we live in, was called the pit and was in deep moral decline, and thus they rejected many elements of the world around them. Now, the Silver Sisterhood was self-sufficient, or at least practiced the act of self-sufficiency. They grew their own food, and they would also use any of the excess of the food to make money in order to buy supplies that they may need. Another practice of their ways was to fast every Friday, in which members skipped their breakfasts and lunches. One way they would work to make money was to operate a tea room, which accepted members of the town as 
patrons. Uh, the Sisterhood was staunchly anti-technology. They did not permit electronic devices or modern appliances to be used by their group, and also did not believe in the use of plastic. They also dressed in full-length dresses and head coverings and referred to themselves as maids. Now, the community was a matriarchy, and they would preach that the patriarchy were a more recent development and would likely be supplanted by the new matriarchal golden age. And just in case anyone's listening, matriarch is women-led, patriarch is male-led. Despite this, they did allow men in their group, with one of the original seven being a male member that left the group in 1983. The group hoped to expand to more men, but ultimately found trouble bringing them into their group. According to the magazine Woman's Spirit, one member was interviewed as saying that the group was a hierarchical in nature and that there was always leaders, whether or not acknowledged. The member was quoted as saying, some maids like to tell others what to do and some maids like to be told what to do. That could be either an MLM, a multi-level marketing scheme, or a sex cult. (laughs) Sometimes MLMs are also sex cults. That's right. Now, in the later part of the 1980s, the group renamed their building St. Bride's School after the 5th century Irish abbess and miracle worker Bridget of Kildare. They also began to wear full Victorian-era outfits on a regular basis. To attract members, the school began to advertise itself in publications like The Observer, The Sunday Times, Girl About Town, and various theater programs. So, like, if you take in a show, perhaps they would be sponsored an ad in the show pamphlet. One writer for the Daily Telegraph at the time said that the house was something out of a gothic novel, describing a single candle flickered behind a lace curtain, which is not safe. Don't do that, folks. Guests were invited into a parlor heated only by a feeble coal fire, and the mistress of the house greeted her guests wearing a long black dress and white lace collar. Now, I'm just wondering if this organization changed their aesthetic based on leadership. And like, Maybe. if somebody was in the original was really into like anti-technology and like worshiping. Um, and then that person left or something happened. And then a new person became a leader and they were really into like gothic aesthetic and like... It's quite possible. But as we'll talk about a bit later, they used a lot of fake names. So it's kind of hard to determine who was with the original group and who is new because some people would adopt older names for people that were in different parts of the group. That's fun. The school was actually more of a holiday location that you would pay to attend. The idea being that you would sign up to attend the school as part of a holiday theme on schooling from that particular era, complete with uniforms and strict teachers. So it was kind of like a really intense LARP if you really enjoyed caning, spanking, and corporal punishment as part of you going to school during this time frame. Which, back to that whole sex cult, perhaps some people did enjoy caning, spanking, and corporal punishment. It's quite possible. Now, as the organization was now acting as a quote-unquote school, they began to offer things like mathematics, Latin, grammar, and literature. The group did deny the use of corporal punishment, but there are reports from people who, like, attended that it was used. So, I tend to more believe the people who, like, went and experienced what St. Bride's was offering and said, yes, corporal punishment was used, versus the people that, like, ran it. Because a lot of times, 
The people that run things lie. Now, the group also became heavily involved in a different, kind of almost like political things, uh, specifically the anti-metric system movement, uh, helping with the campaign Don't Give an Inch, which was an anti-metric system adoption movement in the 80s in England. Two leaders of the group appeared on the Irish television program, The Late Late Show, wearing their traditional Victorian dress. At the time, the mistress of the house was a Miss Claire Terrell, who came from England. Though, per some sources, it's not certain that this was her real name, as many Silver Sisterhood members seemed to take on pseudonyms. During her appearance on The Late Late Show, Miss Terrell stated that the reason they wear traditional outfits wasn't just to escape from the world around them, but that, quote-unquote, we see it as something more creative, and enjoyable than that. And is this an escape from the hustle and bustle of the modern world? Is that, is, is that it? No, we see it as something much more um, creative and enjoyable than that. Um, we do very active and full things with our life and we don't see it as an escape, no. Like other groups, uh, especially new religious movements, the Silver Sisterhood needed to make money. Beyond doing the schooling and selling produce, they also began to sell handmade costumes and jewelry. Another venture they got into was publishing books and magazines. And of course, the reason we're even talking about them on the Classic Gaming Brothers podcast is they made a total of eight adventure games, text adventure games to be specific. And what's interesting is despite the fact that televisions were shunned and banned by the group, they believed that computer games were good as they involved concentration and commitment. So it should be noted that despite using computers to build their games, the school did not have lighting fixtures, so things were lit by candle. So there are reports of people going into the building, which was entirely lit by candle, and seeing a room filled with Commodore 64s. That's that's crazy. It's like the dichotomy of like the candlelight versus the greed glow of the, the the terminals that would be used at that time. And you got all these Victorian dressed women like sitting crouched over these computers working on text adventures. Also just fascinating that at least I lived during this time. <laughs> yeah. Now, according to the podcast, The Secret of St. Brides, which was put out by BBC, the school told the press that they got into game development when an individual that they referred to as Priscilla Langridge came to attend St. Brides as part of that school holiday program. And Miss Langridge apparently brought her Commodore 64 with her and would stay to program the games. It is also believed uh, by the Secret of St. Bride's podcast that Priscilla Langridge did not exist because they point out when people go on holidays, especially back in the 80s, they typically don't bring their home computer with them. <laughs> like the Commodore 64, it wasn't something that you just lugged with you when you came to your Victorian retreat <laughs> in the middle of Ireland. They believe that she didn't exist. They believe that uh, she was likely a pseudonym. In 1992, the group officially left the village of Burtonport and later years, it was reported that there were some disputes over the ownership of the house itself, which possibly led to them leaving. It is also reported that the community eventually would relocate to Oxford and then later relocate to London. I couldn't find follow-up on this information. Literally, when you look up the Silver Sisterhood, it says they existed from like 82 to 92, and then it doesn't say they were around any much longer. So I don't believe they still exist today. I'm also not sure how long they even existed outside of their move from Burtonport. Reportedly, 
when people were going through the house after they had left, far-right and anti-Semitic publications were found in the house, and correspondence with the leader of the far-right British National Party was also found. However, a member of the group denied any far-right leanings, and stated that they did not believe in modern politics at all, so there would be no reason they would have corresponded with this far-right leader. The Secret of St. Brides, which is a great little podcast, does touch upon this, and they, one of the people that they was talking about it, who was not a member of the group and was simply researching it, said that it's possible that these publications were just found because, like, the school just received them as part of their mail. Like, you know, weird stuff gets put in the mail all the time. I, I once found, like, a weird cult-like magazine in my mailbox. It's not something I ordered. It's not something that, like, I kept. But if I put it, like, in a junk drawer, and then a year later I'm out of this apartment and someone's going through my junk drawer and finds it, then they might assume that I was interested in that sort of thing. Um, right. So it's possible that this was just stuff that they had maybe they put into a drunk drawer or something like that. It's also possible that they were interested in anti-Semitic literature. Who knows? <laughs> now, another controversy also did arise when a member of the Silver Sisterhood was arrested and indicted for assaulting a maid. So the group wasn't perfect, definitely has its problems. After the group left Burtonport in 1992, a back catalog of some of their games was acquired by the company GI Games. And some of these games would actually be later re-released. Their games were all pretty much released throughout the time that they were operating out of Burtonport, but GI Games put out like a selection of their games as re-release titles just with their like labels slapped on it. Now a total of eight games were sold by the Silver Sisterhood, primarily for the Commodore 64, Amstrad CPC, and ZX Spectrum. We're going to talk about all of them. For the most part though, the games play very similarly. They're all text adventure games. Uh, they do use some rudimentary graphics to draw various visuals, and depending on the system you play, the visuals may be more or less detailed. A lot of the games also have some reoccurring characters, specifically a Trixie Trinian who appears in the first few games. So now the first game that was released is The Secret of St. Brides, which was released in 1985. You play as Trixie Trinidad, who is this reoccurring character throughout their game. And she's a woman who is set out to discover the secret at St. Brides, which is humorous because this is the cult of St. Bride's writing about a game about the secret at St. Bride's. You So you play as Trixie and you go with your friends Cynthia and Fiona to discover what's going on with the cult, I guess? Yeah, actually. <laughs> The game is, interestingly enough, a bit satirical in the sense that it's your mission to find out why everyone is behaving like it's in the 1920s, when in reality it's the 1980s, just like these people are doing in real life at St. Bride's. You can also find an amulet, and it doesn't have anything to do with the main story. It's just a thing you can find. It's in What's interesting is this Secret of St. Bride's video game, like we, we mentioned, the irony and satire of how a cult pretending that's the 1920s or 1900s when it's really the 1980s have made a video game where you play as somebody trying to figure out why they're doing this when they would know the answer why they're doing it. Yeah. Um, but it's it's interesting that that's their first opening salvo, which I guess it's just something that they were familiar with so that they could make a game about it. They were like, hey, we're a cult. We could do something that's uh, fun and cultish-like. In, in all fairness to the Silver Sisterhood, I think there was... A a lot of tongue-in-cheek nature to their like i think they knew that things were a bit ridiculous right so like one of their leaders right. even said they wear the outfits for fun basically they don't just wear them to like make a statement on society they're doing it just because they think it's fun so i think there was a bit of a self-referential humor to them when it came right. to uh, to their 
structure which i think is fitting that their first game literally is that it's this like almost parody of them the next game they released was the snow queen which they released also in 1985 it's based on the story of the snow queen by hans christian anderson and you play as an advisor to gerda who must rescue her friend that was spirited away to the snow queen unlike in other adventure games you're actually advising the main character gerda and she may not even follow your commands so you're job in the game is to convince somebody to do something and that's it like that's not you're not even that person that's doing the action right uh which i think is unique to a, an adventure game since it's primarily adventure like adventure games primarily follow a protagonist where this one arguably is following the friend of the protagonist so then comes 1986 and there's a game that our listeners may be familiar with they release a game called the very big cave adventure, which is kind of like the colossal cave adventure, which is the famous adventure game that Sierra produced. This game, it is making fun of the colossal cave adventures and has some graphics in it. Some of the sequence in the games also parody Alice in Wonderland and Batman. As the game is a parody, it has a sense of humor about it. And the game starts off with you being introduced to Trixie, who tells you that she's been caving before and she's going to help you. And I believe the implication is that Trixie is in fact the narrator to your adventure uh in 1986 here comes bugsy which is a game that i'm uh familiar intimately with. familiar with it, not intimately familiar but pretty familiar with now bugsby used play as a gangster who's also a three foot tall blue rabbit it takes place in 1922 in chicago and the objective is to become a successful crime boss like all early text adventure games any wrong step led to a quick death just like all the other games that they released too if you don't make the right decision you just die in adventure yeah. in early adventure games and the game resets and you have to try again the game starts out at a saint at saint brides where Bugsy walks in, dies. After he dies, the game prompts you to reset it, and you get to experience what Bugsy went through before he ended up in the state he was in the very beginning of the game, which is pretty meta. Yeah, in fact, Trixie's the one who, like, when Bugsy walks in and just, like, dies, Trixie's the one who who talks to him. And she's like, like, oh, what happened? He's like, let me tell you about it. And then the game resets, and then you have to play Bugsy's perspective. There's a lot of humor in the game, particularly in the way that everything is written, and it's kind of like a faux Chicago Mafia accent. You start the game, there's there's an option you can go into a bar, and if you don't say the right thing to the bartender, you just get blasted with a shotgun. (laughs) The game is brutal i i like i walked into the barber shop and bugsy go uh, the barber's like oh you want me to trim your whiskers and bubsy's like yeah and he's like want me to take off the ears and bubsy's like you do that i'll pop you and then in 1987 uh they released jack the ripper based on the events of jack the ripper the infamous london-based serial killer the game sees you playing as a suspect in the jack the ripper case and you must prove your innocence to avoid being thrown in jail. We'll get into a little bit later, but Jack the Ripper would be the first computer game in England to be given 18 rating, which is not something that happened a lot back in the uh, the 80s. Also, I think it would be fun, and I don't know if it's actually part of the game, if you were actually Jack the Ripper in the game. Oh, that would be fun. I think you, you are playing as a guy who's who's not innocent. You did murder someone in the game, to be fair. Oh, but you funny. are trying to prove that you're not Jack the Ripper. So you are a murderer. You're like, listen, listen, I killed somebody. 
I didn't kill everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think the fear is that your character is going to be used as a patsy and get thrown in jail and be accused of being Jack the Ripper. But you're like, hey, wait a second. I'm not Jack the Ripper. I'm just a regular regular old murderer. Now, their next game, The White Feather Cloak, was released in 1991 and loosely based on a poem written by Mark Pearson, a British novelist and screenwriter, uh, which was interesting because I don't think Pearson had anything to do with the uh, Silver Sisterhood. I think they just liked his poems. Uh, he actually worked for Beyond Software, who developed various Commodore 64 and Z Spectrum games, but the game was not published by Beyond or had anything to do with Beyond. It was just a game based on his poem. In fact, they made another game based on a poem of his. The Dog Boy, also released in 1991, is based on the poem by Mark Pearson, specifically titled King. The game's instruction manual describes that the poem's subject is a monstrous despot who has fallen to the vice of gluttony. The character known as the King has a dog boy, who you play as, a young boy who is able to understand animals and birds, but cannot speak to other humans. You travel down into the Cave of Illusions and discover the secrets of the netherworld. It certainly is a thing. The last game that the Silver Sisterhood would produce would be Silverwolf. Released in 1991, the game is set 5,000 years in the future in West England, and you play as the reincarnation of Princess Mayana, the heir to the throne of the city of Atlantis. Your character, Petra, is tasked with reawakening the memory of Princess Mayana, such as drinking from the Cup of Memory on the Sacred Mountain. However, the evil Morvan and her consort, Lord Fear, are out to stop you with their unholy swarm. There's so much happening in that. <laughs> like description. I love it. Uh, they apparently were also working on a, another game called Wonder Girl, but it was not released. So that, I guess that's a lost game of St. Brides. Now, these games were all pretty much programmed in one engine, the Quill engine, uh, which was a, actually a commercial video game engine sold by Gilsoft. The Quill engine is essentially a standalone product that you could have purchased that acted as a game creation tool for making text adventures. So basically you bought this engine, you could make your own games. The engine can actually get pretty particular with spelling, though it does seem to take into consideration some simple misspellings, which I liked. When I was playing through a bit of The Secret of St. Brides, I misspelled Cynthia with an S, and it still knew what I was talking about, so that was nice. I think I think that's also a good point. Um, being a text adventure game, all these games required inputs from the player, and you have to say things like go to the bar or go forward. Yeah, it's typically verb noun. So go west, go east. Go Yeah, go west. Talk to bartender or something like that. Yeah. You could ask certain things depending on the game. And there was a text interpreter that would try to, f try to figure out what you're saying and how it would translate into it, which Sierra really developed a pretty good text interpreter as well. Um, so they developed their own and the St. Bride cult just bought this one, which is why the St. Bride cult was able to like churn out games. Two in a year for the most part. The uh, St. Bride school games were actually pretty well received, at least from the information that we were able to find. The game Snow Queen scored moderately well with critics, getting a 60% from Computer Gamer, uh, a 21 out of 30 from Computer and Games, 7 out of 10 from Crash, 4 out of, f 4 out of 5 from Sinclair User, and 60% from Zap64. Bugsy was a bit more mixed. Crash gave it an 80%. Sinclair users gave it a 5 out of 5 star, but Zazap64 gave it a 56%. It looks like Zazap64 was pretty critical. Jack the Ripper scored very well, but was also it also received notoriety along the way. The game was published by CRL along with some of the other games by St. Brides. CRL games typically scored 
age ratings of 16 by the British Board of Film Classification. But Jack the Ripper was an exception, scoring an 18 rating. It's likely that Jack the Ripper was one of the first games to ever receive an 18 rating in England due to the amount of gore and violence depicted within the game. Meaning that some stores like W.H. Smith refused to even carry it. Nonetheless, the game received a 78% from Zazap64. Uh, Computer and Games gave the game a 9 out of 10 and said it was one of the best game from St. Brides. And the game machine compared the game to titles by British developer Rod Piker and gave it a 78%. Which I think is part of that like it was uh, notorious and thus made it interesting and drew more hype to it. Yeah. And I think it's kind of like Manhunt, Grand Theft Auto. Some of these games do well sales wise because nobody can you can it's harder for you to buy them so you have to track them out i mean to be blunt people like violence so i'm not surprised that their That's most true. violent games scored the best now in terms of legacy there's definitely a community of people familiar with their games online but in terms of an impact that it left on the gaming world it's hard to say people may be interested in listening to the bbc podcast assume nothing which covers the story of the silver sisterhood for its first six episodes the silver sisterhood i think is an interesting sort of oddity there aren't many cults that are known to have made video games i believe there is one or two other cult produced video games out there so maybe we'll cover those in a future episode there was the the, i forget what they're called they committed the sarin gas attack on uh japan um i believe they produced a video game those people might have a little more notoriety than the silver sisterhood i feel like the silver sisterhood apart from the light bdsm was probably pretty benign yeah yeah but beyond the light bdsm and potential anti-semitism oh yes the racism light bdsm and possibly assault yes uh if you take all those things out that day may have been a little bit benign but you know what i'm sure the people of burtonport were happy that they weren't screaming the whole time <laughs> that's that's true just beating people up and making weird text adventure games i do want to clarify the screamers don't have anything to do with with the silver sisterhood beyond the part that they were in the same town and in the same building so they're in every story of the silver sisterhood it's always like before we talk about the silver sisterhood we have to talk about the screamers <laughs> it's, i mean you gotta. <laughs> now, to get into our retro rewind, Seth had me play Rise of the Triad. Uh, this game was developed by Apogee Software in 1995 and was designed by former id Software developer Tom Hall. Rise of the Triad is a fun, odd little game. It actually began life as a follow-up to Wolfenstein 3D, which shows um, the villains you're fighting who are an evil cult are actually supposed to be Nazis, and they dress like it, like they wear, like, Nazi uniforms, but they're never referred to as Nazis. The game runs on a heavily modified Wolfenstein 3D engine. In the game, you play as a member of Hunt, a team sent to the island of San Nichols to investigate a cult, and the game is a blast. Literally, you fight through enemies with dual-wheeled pistols, dual-wheeled MP40s, and bazookas. While it was built in the Wolfenstein 3D engine, it feels fast, and it feels almost as fast-paced as Doom in some places. I like it. I like it a lot. And I highly recommend you check it out. The game recently did receive a re-release through Night Dive called the Ludicrous Edition. So if you want to check it out, you probably want to check out the Ludicrous Edition because it is the most up-to-date version of the game and probably runs the best. I don't actually have the Ludicrous Edition. I have the version that was released by Apogee a while ago. I think it does run in DOSBox, but it still runs very well. Seth, next week you can play Pilot Wings for the Super Nintendo. Cool. Zach had me play Cyclone. 
of which is spelled CY and then clone, which is a game that was developed by Raven Software, which also developed Star Trek Elite Force and Jedi Outcast. And it was published by SSI, which made a bunch of D&D games. I love both of those companies. So with them together, they made Cyclones, which arguably is a little bit of a mess. In fact, Zach watched some footage of it and said, this game is really janky. Why do you like it? And I said, no. It's great. Uh, so the game is a first-person shooter that was released in 1994 with some great FMV movies to tell the story. And I think any game that starts with some FMV movies of people in a conference room, you're just in for a, you're in for a rip-roaring good time. The game is a smooth mid-90s shooter with a sci-fi twist. The mouse is used more so, and you have to actually move it around to actually pick things up with and interact with things. And there may be enemies that are up high, so you have to move your mouse up to shoot them and so you have this like play area that's your screen that it's like a traditional 90s first person shooter where there's like a bunch of other random garbage on the screen and then like your screen in the middle which is your viewport and that's your character's eyes and you move your mouse and it like rolls all around over the screen and the music has got a cool like electronic uh, beat to it it's if you enjoy first-person shooters, like early 90s first-person shooters, and you want to have a little more complexity in your game, I think it definitely holds up. It definitely gave me some, it gave me like a mixed match of like System Shock and Doom. I think Zach would really enjoy it, even though he said it looked janky. I mean, yeah, I, I don't argue that I wouldn't enjoy it. I love janky games. Uh, Zach, next week you can play Quest 64. Man, speaking of janky games. Anyway, thank you everyone for listening. If anyone is familiar with the uh, St. Bride's games, if you've ever played them before, feel free to email us at ClassicGamingBrothers at gmail.com. Also feel free to follow us on Facebook, Classic Gaming Brothers, Instagram, Classic Gaming Brothers, Twitter, CG Brothers Pod, or Blue Sky, CG Brothers Pod. We're available wherever podcasts can be found out there, be it iHeartRadio or Podbean or iTunes tunes and with that seth am i forgetting anything yeah if you were a member of saint bride's school or attended it at any point please email us we would love to talk to you and possibly have you on the show mm, yeah and we, I, could, we could cover this all over again yeah yeah absolutely we'll just delete this episode and put in a new one anyway seth yeah is there anything else i'm forgetting don't play games like my brother and don't play games like my brother i've been seth and i've been zach and we've been the classic gaming brothers that's that's right, right.